You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 154, John Stark raises an army. So last week, we covered a couple of the raids around New York City that were happening in late summer 1777. This week, we're heading back up to upstate New York and New England. By the beginning of August 1777, General Burgoyne's army had reached the Hudson River. To the west, Fort Stanwix was still under siege, awaiting General Arnold's relief force that I discussed a couple of weeks ago. We last left General Burgoyne following the murder of Jane McRae, which also helped to spur Patriot opposition to his army and resulting in some of his Indian warriors abandoning the mission and going home. The American defense, however, was still in complete disarray. General Philip Schuyler was trying to rally an army of both Continentals and militia near Fort Edward to stop Burgoyne's march on Albany. But after the loss of Fort Ticonderoga, many Americans had lost faith in the army. Desertions were still far outnumbering the small numbers of reinforcements that General Washington had sent marching north to join Schuyler. General Burgoyne had taken Fort Edward again without any fight. General Schuyler moved to the other side of the Hudson River, using the river as a barrier between the Continentals and Burgoyne's British and German army. Schuyler then retreated the American army further south towards Saratoga, still without any apparent plan to mount a stand. With the bulk of the Continental Army still in New Jersey, and having to remain there to face General Howe's army in New York City, the only way to stop Burgoyne's northern army was to call out the militia and hope that they were up to the task. A key figure in the effort to mobilize the militia was a former Continental colonel named John Stark. You may recall that Colonel Stark played a key role in the Battle of Bunker Hill, which I discussed back in episodes 65 and 66. Stark was a New Hampshire native. When he was in his early 20s, he had been captured by the Abenaki warriors and taken to Canada. There, he and another prisoner were forced to run a gauntlet. This was a common practice among natives to beat and humiliate prisoners. The men had to run through a row of warriors armed with sticks. The warriors would beat them as they ran through. Usually, somebody would try to run through as fast as they could, and if they fell, get up and keep going before the warriors beat them to death. Instead, Stark grabbed a stick of the first warrior in line and proceeded to beat the warrior. The chief was impressed by Stark's bravery and fighting ability, so much that he permitted him to live and hunt with the tribe over the winter. Stark was later adopted into the chief's family, and in the following spring, Stark was part of a prisoner exchange that allowed him to return to New Hampshire. 
As a member of the New Hampshire militia, Stark had fought in Canada during the French and Indian War. At that time, he had risen to the rank of captain in Rogers Rangers. Stark resigned his commission after refusing to attack an Abenaki village, the same one where he had lived a few years earlier. He had no wish to attack his adopted parents and fellow tribe members. Instead, he ended his military service in the French and Indian War early as a result. After the Battle of Lexington, Stark accepted a colonelcy in the New Hampshire militia and marched his regiment to join the Provincial Army just outside of Boston. He led one of the few units that actually marched out onto Bunker Hill to support Colonel Prescott's defenders on Breed's Hill. There, he commanded the American left wing, where his men tenaciously fought off several British assaults. His men provided covering fire as the main force on Breed's Hill was overrun and had to escape. His leadership landed him a colonelcy in the new Continental Army once Washington took command. Stark's regiment provided support for the Northern Army that had been pushed out of Canada. After British General Carleton opted not to attack Fort Ticonderoga in late 1776, Stark's New Hampshire regiment was redeployed to Pennsylvania in time to join General Washington's campaign to take Trenton and Princeton. Stark commanded the American right wing at the Battle of Trenton. So, Colonel Stark had played a key role in most of the battles and campaigns of the war so far. His leadership was conspicuous, brave, and effective. He seemed to be one of the best field officers in the Continental Army. After Washington settled in Morristown for the winter, he directed Colonel Stark to return to New Hampshire and raise more volunteers. While in New Hampshire, Stark learned that Enoch Poor, another New Hampshire colonel, had been promoted to Brigadier General in February 1777. This was the day that the Baltimore Congress promoted nine generals. Stark was outraged that Poor received the promotion for New Hampshire rather than him. Poor had also been promoted as a militia colonel just after Lexington. But Poor kept his regiment in New Hampshire while Starks was fighting multiple battles around the country. Poor had participated in the Quebec campaign, but his combat experience was minimal compared to Stark. Poor had been a politician before the war and had contacts in the Continental Congress that probably resulted in him receiving the one general's commission slated for New Hampshire. Poor's promotion was one of a great many frustrations that Stark had experienced in the Continental Army. A month after Poor's promotion, Stark resigned his commission in the Continental Army and returned home, once again cutting short his military service. In July 1777, after Burgoyne captured Fort Ticonderoga, the Patriots were in desperate need of soldiers to contest this invasion. However, most of their best leaders and soldiers were already with the Continental Army, either with Washington in New Jersey or Schuyler in New York. There was no real front-line defense for New England itself. New Hampshire offered Colonel Stark a commission as Brigadier General in the New Hampshire Militia. Stark was still embittered by his experience in the Continental Army, but wanted to put his military leadership to use in defending his home. He accepted the commission with the explicit understanding that he would not take orders from Continental officers. He would fight to defend New Hampshire, but he was finished with the Continental Army.
Next, New Hampshire needed hard money to pay and equip the militia. You can't raise an army on patriotism alone, even when the enemy is at your front door. Fortunately, one of New Hampshire's leaders, John Langdon, stepped forth with $3,000 in hard specie. Langdon was a longtime patriot and an early member of the Committee of Correspondence for his state. You may remember him from back in episode 51, when he led the 1774 attack on Fort William and Mary in Portsmouth. Langdon had also accepted a colonelcy in the New Hampshire militia, but he was more politician than soldier. He had been Speaker of the New Hampshire Assembly and also served in the Continental Congress. Langdon also ran a fleet of privateers, which had earned him some serious coin in the first couple years of the war. When he put up the money, Langdon figured that he would either be reimbursed if the Americans eventually won. If not, he would probably be hanged as a traitor and wouldn't need the money anyway. Signing bonuses for the soldiers and proper supplies to support them, along with the knowledge that they could be under attack any day, led the militia to flock to New Hampshire's defense. Knowing that General Stark would lead them also influenced many men to join. He was a well-respected officer and a leader of men. Within a few weeks, General Stark had raised a force of nearly 1,500 militia, about 25 companies. General Stark spent that time organizing and training his men. Most of his militia were frontiersmen, familiar with the region and experienced Indian fighters. Many older men had combat experience from the French and Indian War. Stark focused on organizing the men into units and drilled fighting as a unit. By August, he sent about half of his force to Manchester, Vermont. Stark remained in New Hampshire, organizing the remainder of his force, and then marched to catch up with his advance force in Manchester. When he arrived, he found his soldiers preparing to march south to join up with Schuyler's Continentals near Fort Edward in New York. General Benjamin Lincoln had already arrived on the scene and issued the order. Stark and Lincoln had a private conversation, the details of which are not known. However, the gist of the discussion was that Stark told Lincoln that the New Hampshire militia would remain where they could defend New Hampshire. They were not under the command of Continental officers, and they were not going to New York. Now, this actually fit in with General Schuyler's original plans. He wanted to maintain a force in Burgoyne's rear, that could harass the enemy as it moved south towards Schuyler's main army near Saratoga. George Washington had already approved this plan. But as Burgoyne moved south against Schuyler's dwindling army, Schuyler changed his mind and wanted to consolidate his army for a large-scale stand that would stop the British movement southward. To do that, he wanted Stark's militia to join them in New York. Stark, as I said though, was not interested in doing this. He made clear that he would not put himself or his army under the command of Continental officers. General Lincoln was a good enough politician to realize that Stark could not be pushed or bullied into joining the main army. If Stark quit and went home again, most of his army would probably follow him. Rather than lose this desperately needed army entirely, Lincoln agreed not to push the issue. After Schuyler learned of the situation, he agreed with Lincoln's assessment. But that did leave Lincoln with little to do. 
Schuyler had ordered Lincoln to command any New England forces while Schuyler commanded the main army in New York. But since the only significant forces still in New England were Stark's militia army, which would not listen to him, Lincoln did not have much of a command. After a few days, Lincoln went back to New York to be with the main army under Schuyler. On August 8th, Stark moved his army from Manchester to Bennington. The town was a Patriot supply depot and a likely target for a British attack. It was about 30 miles southeast of Saratoga. If the British opted to move into New England and march toward Rhode Island, Bennington would be a key transit point. Stark left the remnants of Seth Warner's Continentals, who had survived the Battle of Hubberton, to occupy Manchester, and left General Lincoln with that small force as well. Stark's militia army marched off to encamp in and around Bennington. As Stark prepared his army, General Burgoyne was looking at the region and planning his next steps. By this time, Burgoyne had accomplished what most British strategists thought would be the most difficult part of the campaign, capturing Fort Ticonderoga. The Americans had abandoned the fort without a fight after seeing vulnerabilities in their defenses that would have resulted in the destruction and capture of the garrison. Instead, American General Sinclair retreated southward, hoping to get reinforcements so that he could make a stand. Burgoyne had continued to move south, albeit slowly, as Americans felled hundreds of trees to block his army's path. By the time his army reached the Hudson River, it had faced no serious and sustained opposition to his offensive. Now, this was not to say that everything went according to plan. Burgoyne had hoped to capture the Continentals at Fort Ticonderoga. Almost all of the garrison there had escaped and had bloodied the British pursuers in the rearguard action at Hubberton. Most of Burgoyne's Indian allies had abandoned him after he put restrictions on them sometime after the murder of Jane McRae and other civilians. The second wing of the British offensive under General Barry St. Ledger was still stuck besieging Fort Stanwix at this point in early August. After the British had made their difficult wilderness march to Fort Edward, General Burgoyne found his army increasingly cut off from his resources in Canada. He had opened up a supply route from Fort George, which had helped some of his artillery and heavier supplies catch up with the main army. But an army of thousands also needed food, they also needed many more horses to carry all the equipment and move further south to engage the enemy. Burgoyne also learned that the main British army under General Howe would not be moving up the Hudson Valley to join forces with him. Rather, Howe had taken his army south to conquer Philadelphia. At the same time, the scattered Continental Army was collecting its soldiers and being supplemented by militia armies particularly the large militia army under General Stark. All of this meant that General Burgoyne found his army increasingly isolated. The conservative move would have been to pull back to Fort Ticonderoga and call an end to the offensive until either Howe's army would be ready to assist in the Hudson Valley or London sent a larger army through Canada. But you have to remember, General Burgoyne had gotten this command by criticizing his superiors for being too conservative. He was not going to fall into that same trap and delay his victory for another year. 
Doing so might have resulted in London sending another general to finish the job for him. No, Burgoyne was determined to press on and capture Albany. Although Burgoyne did not have good intelligence of Stark's militia army preparing to move against him, he did have more general information that the Americans were gathering and had good reason to fear an attack from New England in his rear. He had planned to send a detachment of Germans to sack Manchester, then move south, eventually reconnecting with the advancing main army near Albany. Burgoyne's hope was that the detachment would pacify the region, collect Tory volunteers, and also gather much-needed supplies and horses. Many of the German troops that were with Burgoyne were cavalry. They had come to America without horses, hoping to become mounted troops when the opportunity presented itself. The army also found itself in need of more horses to use as pack animals. This was a pretty audacious mission. Less than a thousand soldiers, mostly Germans who did not speak English, were marching out on a more than 200-mile round trip through the wilderness with very little intelligence about what faced them. The leader of the German troops and Burgoyne's second-in-command, General von Redesel, thought this was a crazy amount to expect of his soldiers. After a few days of discussions, Burgoyne reduced the scope of the march to move on the depot at Bennington, capture horses and supplies there, and recruit as many loyalists as they could before they rejoined Burgoyne's army. To lead the raid on Bennington, Burgoyne selected Lieutenant Colonel Friedrich Baum, a German Brunswicker officer who led a regiment of dragoons. A dragoon, if you don't know, is a soldier that normally rides a horse, but unlike a cavalry soldier, dragoons tend to dismount before going into battle, fighting without their horses. In Baum's case, his men had no horses at all. They were marching around with heavy boots and equipment designed for riding. Baum hoped to capture hundreds of horses in the Connecticut Valley to equip both his own men as well as for the army more generally. Baum was a career officer who had seen combat in the Seven Years' War. However, he had no experience with wilderness fighting and had never commanded more than a regiment. He also spoke no English at all. Burgoyne also deployed with Baum a few British regulars, as well as some of the remaining Native American scouts that had remained with the army. Also with Baum was Philip Skeen, the Tory militia officer who had assured Burgoyne that most of the region still held loyalist views and would rise up to support the army when they arrived. Burgoyne tasked Skeen with raising local recruits and getting them to join local regiments in support of the king. On August 9th, Baum left Fort Edward with about 650 soldiers, almost all German-speaking Brunswickers, and a few cannons. His men moved about eight miles downriver to Fort Miller, which the Americans had already abandoned. There, he waited a day for the Native American warriors and British regulars who would accompany them. When the regulars were not available, Baum received another hundred Germans to supplement his detachment. He also collected several hundred local Loyalist volunteers, either at Fort Miller or over the next couple of days while marching. Movement, though, was slow. As I said, the Germans were outfitted with heavy boots and long wool coats that were sweltering in the August heat. 
Because they still did not have enough horses, the soldiers had to carry much of their own supplies. The footpaths that they used made transporting carts or the artillery extremely difficult. As a result, the column made slow progress over the next few days. Among the civilians, a great many professed support for the king. Some of them joined the column as volunteers, and Skeen did his best at recruitment. Many others, after swearing an oath of allegiance, were given documents identifying them as loyalists and permitting them to move about. Some of these were apparently American spies who counted troop levels and reported their intelligence about size and direction of the force back to General Stark. At one point, Baum's advance force captured a few Patriot prisoners who had been herding cattle. From prisoner interrogations, as well as information from Loyalists, he learned that the supply depot at Bennington did not just have a small force, but rather an army of between 15 and 1,800 men. Even with the Loyalist volunteers that he had recruited, Baum had just a little over 1,000 men himself. If this intelligence was correct, he would be marching toward a superior enemy who had entrenched defenses. Baum forwarded the intelligence to Burgoyne, along with a request for reinforcements to join his column as soon as possible. Meanwhile, he pressed forward on toward Bennington. Next week, the Battle of Bennington. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Trey Nance, who supports this podcast as an Alexander Hamilton Club supporter on Patreon. Also thanks to Mike Hager for his support as a Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon. I'd also like to thank Craig Strunig and Matthew Domer for their support for the show via PayPal. I really appreciate everyone who has stepped up to make an ongoing donation via Patreon, PayPal, or any other resource. Your generosity helps me to defray my expenses and helps to keep this podcast free for everyone. This week, we covered the militia army that New England raised in response to the British capture of Fort Ticonderoga. In hindsight, we know that British General Burgoyne's goal was to continue to march south and link up with the forces in New York City. But at the time, New Englanders feared that the invading army might hang a left and march right into New England, perhaps linking up with the British army that was in Rhode Island. The Continental Army was never large enough to defend everywhere, 
and many colonists did not want a standing army that large. They saw the militia as the line of defense in such times. New England's ability to raise and outfit a militia army, despite having already sent many men to go fight in the Continental Army, seems to prove the point that militia could, at least sometimes, be effective. New England militias seemed to be particularly well-armed and also united against British rule. That is why, after abandoning Boston in the first year of the war, the British largely ignored New England, other than a few raids and the occupation of Newport for a short time. John Stark's command of the militia army, that we will see in action next week at the critical Battle of Bennington, also raises the ongoing issue about the politics of the Continental Congress. As I discussed in today's main show, Stark had been a Continental colonel, and a very good one by most accounts. The fact that he got passed over for general in favor of Enoch Poor says a great deal about the politics that went on in Congress. Getting passed over for promotion led to the resignations of a great many officers over the course of the war. John Stark was just one example of this. For the most part, these men were still patriots and willing to fight. They just had lost faith in the Continental Congress's ability to lead. Congress's inept leadership, at times, is one reason why George Washington is so revered. Military leaders often have little patience for politicians making stupid decisions that could result in the loss of the war. That's the reason why men like Oliver Cromwell before this time, or Napoleon afterwards, dissolved legislatures and simply ruled themselves as dictators. Washington was very much of a different mold in that he always deferred to Congress and respected Congress's wishes even when he thought they were wrong or downright stupid. He would not even criticize them openly. Others, though, like John Stark, simply got fed up and quit. Last week I mentioned that General John Sullivan would do the same thing a few years later. Many other leaders would resign, at least for a time at various points during the war, and John Stark fell into that category. Even so, he was willing to raise and lead a militia army when the need arose. In doing so, he refused to put himself under the command of the Continental Army. Stark would return to service after the Battle of Bennington, when Congress finally did give him a commission as a brigadier general in the Continental Army. In fact, he would be the last New Englander commissioned as a general until after the victory at Yorktown. After the war, Stark retired to his farm and held no government offices. Many years later, after the war, a group of veterans of the Battle of Bennington met at a reunion. Stark was too sick to travel, but sent the group a letter. The closing line of his letter was, Live free or die. Death is not the worst of all evils. Of course, the first four words of that sentence later became New Hampshire's state motto. We'll hear more about Stark next week and in future episodes. But if you want to read more about John Stark, there are several good biographies. And one of them is this week's book recommendation. It is called Stark. The Life and Wars of John Stark, French and Indian War Ranger, Revolutionary War General, by Richard and John Polhemus. Some have criticized the book for not discussing Stark's battles in enough detail, 
or for drifting off into discussions of others who were intertwined with Stark. If you want a book that focuses exclusively on the life of the man, you may want a different book. But I thought this book gave good coverage of the war from John Stark's perspective. At about 400 pages, it's pretty thorough and should keep your attention. The authors, Richard and John Polhamus, are both retired professionals who have an obvious love of history. They published this book in 2014 and have collaborated on at least one other book together. If you want to read more about John Stark, you may want to give this book a read. If you don't want to buy a book but still want to read about John Stark, then you can check out my online recommendation this week. It's an ebook called A Life of General John Stark of New Hampshire by Howard Parker Moore. The writing, common in older books, seems a little stilted to the modern reader, but at over 500 pages, it is good coverage of Stark's life. It was published in 1949, but apparently is in the public domain because, well, because copyright law is a mess. In any event, you can search for the book on archive.org or use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.